2: Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on this incredible Tuesday, this wonderful Tuesday. Tuesdays make me so happy because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us today. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing well. I just love every Tuesdays with you because I always learn something from you.
3: Oh my gosh, I wonder what you're going to learn today.
2: Well, for, before we start our show, I want to know. I mean, <laughs> you were right. First first of all, I should uh, always, give you that. Yeah. You're always right. But Donald Trump has somewhat disappeared since the Republican. Uh, not
3: disappeared, but he's 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 been blunted a bit. I guess he's the current polls show him tied with uh, Dr. Ben Carson at 21% and both parts of that tell you everything you know need to know about why you know, leading re- Republicans pretty much are scared to death.
2: I guess, well, m- you know, maybe uh, I haven't seen him uh, on all the tabloids lately, or maybe even the media. I know that he's been banned from Fox News.
3: Except he's doing an interview with one of their people. I don't know which one it is. Because <laughs> you watch Fox News. I don't
2: know. All white people me. <laughs> oh, wait, no, he was on the cover of a gay magazine. What? <laughs> Now I'm just spreading rumors. Ah, He's going to come after me. Hey, that would be awesome. Then we'd get like super attention on this program.
3: Well, the interesting thing actually to me is Jeb Bush has just fallen and fallen and fallen. He's now Mm -hmm. down in whatever sixth place or something. And uh, Politico.com has stories about how he's trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, reassure his funders. So he's the one to watch.
2: Well, tune in to John's show, uh, which we broadcast here on the Progressive Voices Network with, uh, every Friday. Every Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific right. Standard Time. It's week-to-week political roundtable talk. To um, and, 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 and I tuned in last, last Friday. And, you you know, you do a wonderful job with your guests and talking and discussing about the presidential race. So if you're interested in that stuff, make sure you tune in. Thanks. Let's start the show. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest founded Media Matter, uh, media Matter America, an organization that focuses on monitoring the right-wing conservative uh, media. On That all, happens all across the platform, so not just television, radio, but print and, and everything. He was once a journalist whose position on politics have shifted to the left. He's written several, several books, which includes the best-selling uh, book, Blinded by the Right, and he's here today to talk about his new book, which is titled Killing the Messenger, the Right-Wing Plot to Derail Hillary and Hijack Your Government. So let's welcome David Brock to the program. David, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me on. So, David, uh, you know, le- without even going into great detail and just by, uh, you know, reading the title, most progressives, as well as the Clintons, uh, have believed that there is a major right-wing conspiracy to take down the Clintons. So is this book the absolute tell-all?
4: Well, yes it is. Uh, I think that, you know, the right-wing conspiracy that Hillary Clinton talked about in 1998 was very real. Um, I was involved in it myself in the early 1990s. Um, Today, It's less of a conspiracy, I think, than it is a conglomerate. Um, There was a kind of ragtag anti-Clinton operation going on in the 1990s. It certainly had some money behind it, uh, but a lot of it was operating in secret until the story began to be told uh, around President Clinton's impeachment. Today, we have a much more well-financed, more sophisticated. uh, And, uh, you know, the Koch brothers uh, operate somewhat in secret, but a lot of it is actually out in the open now. Um, and So what I try to do is tell the story of 10 years later what the, uh, what the right wing is up to in this election cycle, what their playbook is. I started the book about a year ago and I try to predict what it is we're going to see play out between now and November of 2016. And I think, you know, for better or worse, I did a pretty good job predicting things um, because we're in the middle of a lot of what I consider to be fake scandals. Uh, And I take you through that, and I show you how they're manufactured, uh, name names, and explain the synergy, really, between Republican, partisan Republicans who have their own reasons to derail Hillary, and a lot of people in the media who have different reasons, but still are working hand in glove to derail Hillary.
3: I think that's, good, that's a good point, because it's not just the right wing that can't get over this Hillary hate. I mean, there's the Washington establishment media. You've talked about the New York Times. I mean, you know, Vanity Fair, what is it? Every you know Clinton conspiracy becomes a major story for them. Uh, when, when you talk about do, do those folks who are kind of considered to be like the establishment media, some of whom I'm sure consider themselves to be liberal, do? Uh, do you think they see themselves as being part of any sort of anti-Hillary movement or are they oblivious to it? I mean, what, what's operating on the, uh, within you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, who just will keep regurgitating these stories, whether it's Benghazi or uh, the email servers or stuff like that?
4: Yeah, well, let's take the specific of the New York Times, which I think has been the most egregious example of a mainstream, certainly their editorial line is liberal, uh, outlet that has been used. Um, specifically by the Republicans investigating for the 10th time, uh, Benghazi. Uh, And, yeah, I mean, I can't get inside people's heads, but they must know they're being used by this point. Um, There were three allegations in recent months on the front page of the New York Times that linked Hillary Clinton to potential criminal misconduct. And, you know, people wonder, you know, about her polls, you know, how would you be doing in the polls if that was the case with you? Probably not great. Um, and each of these stories ended up being, in one way or another, false or wrong, unraveling after they were published, sometimes corrected by the time, sometimes not. Um, and I walked the reader through the intricacies of how these stories got developed, uh, where they came from uh... what they alleged and 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 why it's wrong going back to the very first email story that the times broke when they broke the story of her personal use of an email account and said in the headline that this was a violation of federal rules and they had that wrong the rule that was uh... passed uh... regarding the email was passed after hillary clinton left office it didn't apply to her and so there was no law at issue Uh, and yet the Times rushed that into print and went with it anyway, and then that became a pattern. And, you know, the thing is, if people read the New York Times um, and read it carefully, they'll see that the Times has a public editor, which is kind of like an ombudsman. And uh, her name is Margaret Sullivan, and she's written several columns in these last few months saying that the coverage of the Times was troubling, uh, was not fair to Hillary, uh, was flawed. Uh, And so it's not, just me saying this, it's someone within the Times itself who has shown that uh, this is the case. And what I try to do is trace it back. I go back to the early 1990s, as you say, the Washington establishment and animus and resistance to the Clintons. Uh, first came in the form of the Whitewater phony scandal in 1992. And there are a lot of similarities to how that played out um, as to what we're seeing now. That story was planted by Republican operatives um, back in Arkansas. Um, you know, h- uh, tens of millions of dollars were spent ultimately investigating it uh, to find no wrongdoing uh, by the Clintons. Uh, And that's a similar situation that we're in now. Um, Benghazi, as I mentioned, has been investigated by 10 congressional committees uh, run by, in some cases, run by Republicans. The House Intelligence Committee run by Republicans uh, found no wrongdoing. And now that investigation has morphed uh, into emails, which even the chairman of the committee, Trey Gowdy says, has virtually nothing to do with what they're actually investigating. Right. So this is scandal-mongering.
3: Well, and what is it about the Clintons in particular that, that feeds this or attracts it? Or I mean, obviously, I mean, they, look, Bill Clinton won two elections. Hillary Clinton was resoundingly elected to two uh, terms in the Senate. Uh, has been, was popular as a, a Secretary of State Bill Clinton is regularly tops the list of most popular uh, you know politicians in the country and yet this stuff continues to gain you know, to get traction and, and get rehashed. Is it something about them? Is it something about the way they deal with it?
4: Well, I think there are a few things about them, and then there are a few things about their opponents um, If you go back to um, the early part of the 1990s where I was actually on the, you know, I was active in the conservative movement and people were talking about, you know, from the day after he was elected in 1992, I had people in my circles who were talking about how to get Bill Clinton impeached. Um, Did he do anything to bring that on? Certainly not, Uh, not in 1993. Uh, you know, I think they represented a unique political challenge to the Republicans. Uh, they were genera- generationally uh, uh, turned the page at that time. Uh, the change that was promised, the, um, the, the background of Hillary Clinton as the first first lady who had had uh, professional life coming into the job. Uh, and then President Clinton, frankly, his success in office um, left the Republicans without very many issues, and so they personalized everything, and it turned into personal attack after personal attack, and I think the same thing applies now. Um, I show in the book that within a few months after Hillary Clinton left the State Department, eight conservative organizations and super PACs were formed in the spring of 2013 to go after her at a time when she hadn't even decided whether she was running for president to try to tarnish her record and discredit her reputation. And why? Because the Republicans know what most Democrats believe, that she's the most formidable candidate that Democrats can field um, by a dint of who she is, uh, what she stands for, the popularity of those stances versus the issues that Republicans have to work with. And so they've settled on a line of character attack, and we're in the middle of that right now. Uh, and the reality is they don't want to face her in the general election. So they're even, uh, you know, Republicans uh, cheerleading uh, her primary opposition, uh, hoping to beat her or weaken her so that they don't have to face her in that general, because uh, I think they're, you know, they're the odds are against them uh, running against Hillary Clinton in the general election. So they're doing everything they can to see that that doesn't happen.
2: Michelle Miao and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club on the phone with us is best-selling author David Brock. He's got a new book out, Killing the Messenger, the right wing plot to derail Hillary and hijack your government. Um You know, David, you mentioned the Super PACs and and these uh, PACs, these other organizations who are forming now. And for some reason, (laughs) my email um, has landed in some PACs email list, and it's America Rising and just the other... Morning, I got sent this alert from them that, you know, Hillary is, is such a hypocrite after speaking about climate control and environmental issues, jumped into a private plane. Is You know, these types of stories, that's, uh, that's what, you know, you uncover in the book that's part of their playbook, the attacking her character?
4: Oh, absolutely, yeah. America Rising is really one of the foremost of the groups that I just mentioned formed in 2013 um, after... Uh, after the republican defeat in 2012 and the successful effort i think to by democrats to show mitt romney for who he was uh they went into business um very early on targeting hillary clinton on everything from benghazi to the things you were just mentioning um it's uh, an opposition research kind of factory uh and they're feeding this 24 7 to the press and that is part of their whole operation it's not just uh, it's not just Benghazi and emails, um, it's, it's, it's everything from she's out of touch, uh, she's a hypocrite, she's inauthentic. Um, all of this drives storylines in the press, unfortunately.
3: Well, and of course, oppo research done by both sides is really a matter of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what, what uh, will stick. I have a question about uh, some criticism Hillary Clinton has gotten, and I'm saying this personally as a Hillary Clinton supporter. So not speaking for my employers or anyone else, just that those are my views. But, so I hear a lot of people who, when they talk about, for example, the Clinton email matter, they then say that it's not really a matter of what the emails were, whether it was illegal or anything like that, but it's about this perception that the Clintons are always you know, slippery and they, don't need, they feel they don't need to play by the same rules as everyone else. What do I tell people? What should, what's an answer to a, a charge like that?
4: Well, I think, I mean, one answer is that the Clintons are held to a double standard. I mean, there are no rules here that Hillary Clinton invented for herself. Colin Powell did the exact same thing with the use of personal email. And in fact, from what he has said, he deleted all of his email, including the work-related and the personal email. And we're never going to see that. Um, Jeb Bush, you know, is in violation of Florida law um, for waiting seven years to release just a portion of the emails that he was supposed to release under uh, what the Florida law required. So in some way, there's there's a kind of obsessive focus on Hillary that I define in the book as the Clinton rules. What's normal and usual and typical for other politicians when the Clintons do it is somehow seen as corrupt and wrong. And I think that is a double standard, and I think that's one thing one can say about this is that um, uh, there's just disproportionate media coverage on everything Hillary related. I mean, before she was even running for president, every media, major media outlet in the country had a reporter um, full time on her looking for any crumb that these groups like America Rising could throw out um, so that they could get a story. And as I say, you know, I don't think this is a conspiracy with the media. I don't think it's even ideological or partisan. I just think what a lot of it is, other than Donald Trump, um, you know, the Clintons sell a lot of papers. They, they make uh, high ratings and click-throughs, and their reporters, it's a very competitive beat. And sometimes, as the New York Times has seen itself... They rush things into print without holding themselves to their own standards so that they can get the story, uh, and it doesn't quite work out for them in the end.
2: We're going to take a quick break right here, David, so you'll stay with us as we continue our uh, conversation about your brilliant book here. Great. The Michelle
5: Miall Show continues right after this. Don't go away. <laughs>
3: And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
2: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and also with us is John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Our guest today and on the phone with us is best-selling author David Brock. He's got a new book out, Killing the Messenger, the right wing plot to derail Hillary and hijack your government. Uh, David, you know, we opened up the show just kind of joking around a little bit about uh, Donald Trump. I know, you know, John here talks a, a lot about the uh, presidential race and, and and about the conservative or Republican candidates. You mentioned earlier that there is a strategy to all this. They don't want to go up against Hillary Clinton. And I've seen in some of their emails they even kind of, you know, pit progressive voter, voters against the Hillary versus the Bernie Sanders I wonder if that's also a strategy that you've uncovered. And, and I mean, of all their candidates, I can't see that they have a strong strategy at all.
4: Yeah, well, I think that's true. Um, so I think the uh, the conservative apparatus that I talk about in the book—not the presidential candidates, but the apparatus, the America Rising's and the Republican National Committee—they uh, all do have. Uh, they all do have the anti-Hillary strategy that we've talked about and one of the things they have done is um, is attacking her from the left Um, and they're doing that just as you say to try to divide the Democratic Party so they have attacked her for example for having too close ties to Wall Street Uh, I mean this is a party that really the hot calling the kettle black. Um, So if they want to talk about hypocrisy, I would probably start there. Um, So that is one of their tactics that, you know, a lot of the main cheerleaders now for uh, a strong challenge for Hillary in the primary is coming from the conservative movement. I lay all that out in the book. Um, But at the end of the day, um, I think you're also right that the field itself is in disarray. um, And they're in such disarray, they don't have time to have you know the candidates themselves don't really have time to have an anti hillary strategy they they take their swipes but the party um, establishment is in such a panic over the fact that uh, over the rise of the insurgents of trump and Carson particularly uh that um that they have they have their uh, plate full trying to figure out how to stop trump uh, and um the big story uh that gets less coverage, I think, by far than Hillary's polls, uh, are Jeb Bush's polls. Um, You know, he is down 3% in Iowa the last time I looked. Um, The Republican Party clearly doesn't want the heir apparent, the most establishment figure in the race. Uh, And so you have this dynamic where the three leaders in the the polls, uh, none of them have any government experience. Uh, none of them are really plausible general election candidates, ultimately, I think, but that's where all the energy is. And particularly uh, lately, um, with Trump uh, you know, sagging a little bit, um, it's the result of the demagoguing of this Planned Parenthood funding issue. Uh, which Carly Fiorina has made a signature issue with her imaginary uh, fetuses Mm
0: -hmm.
4: Um, and so Trump I think has a little less to offer on the social issue red meat side and that's why you're seeing a few of the others rise Um, but you know at the end of the day my feeling is that the Koch brothers and I I talk a lot about them in the book and how they the apparatus that they've created um, they're not for Trump because they can't control Trump Uh, and at the end of the day, they have to figure out how to step in and get somebody to lead the anti-Trump movement. It doesn't look like it's going to be Jeb Bush. Um, so it's uh, all a little uncertain, and it's not going to be obviously Scott Walker.
3: <laughs> that's true. Um, you've talked about this kind of movement or evolution from a conspiracy on the right to to a conglomerate, and I think that's a great way of describing it. I mean, you were definitely a, a, a part of that. Um, and I, in a tangential way, I was. I was an editor of a conservative college paper uh, when I was in school uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but one thing I've also noticed is, is an evolution away from, I mean, what interested me about that movement at the time was it was a lot of the East Coast intellectuals. It was a lot of you know the, the people making arguments and commentary and elsewhere. The entire movement seems to have become much more populist these days and very anti-intellectual. Um, is it still controlled or driven or going the way that the people who are putting their money into, behind it want it to go? Or, you know, it, as we see with Donald Trump, does it get to manifest itself in ways that they weren't hoping for because, you know, other people are able to ride a populist wave a little more easily than
4: some of the older Right. Ones. Well, I think that to some extent their own tactics have backfired. So yeah. they've unleashed some forces that uh, they can't control. So, you know, if you go back to when President Obama came into office in 2009 and the rise of the Tea Party movement, which had some piece of it that was real and was organic, but a lot of it had to do with Koch Brothers funding um, and Koch Brothers orchestration. Uh, and now, uh, you know, as we saw last week, the, even the conservative leadership of the House gets basically thrown out. Uh, and uh, and things are thrown into turmoil. So you have that. You also have the rise of you know Citizens United, which the Republicans brought into law. Uh, conservative judges um, that's had the ironic effect of you know all these candidates each have their own super PAC, and everybody can have their own eccentric billionaire behind them, which draws out this process and, and guarantees you you know multiple multiple candidates. And so I do think there's a sense in which, um, you know, as, as as organized as they are, they're certainly not as in control. It's not as disciplined a party as it was back when I was involved in the mid-1990s. And on the intellectual side, um, I think what you're saying is exactly right. We now have, you know, name-calling uh, and, you know, rampant racism and sexism that's passing for platforms that these folks are running on. And that's a big difference from the way it was when I entered the movement back in the late 1980s uh, when, you know, I mean, I wrote for Commentary Magazine and, uh, you know, so yeah, there is no intellectual core or leadership today.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm upset. I don't have a billionaire backing me. Um, can, the, your whole move, obviously, from, you know, an activist on the right to, uh, to the left, is fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because your new book starts with, uh, you know, you're telling about you're going back to Arkansas, Little Rock, and and meeting some of these Clintonites who you had personally attacked. Um, I just have to ask, what was it like when you first met Hillary Clinton?
4: Well, I first met Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, I, I wrote the book you mentioned, "Blinded by the Right," it was published back in 2002, and that was that had two parts to it. It was partly an expose on what I had seen as far as the inner workings of the anti-Clinton movement, but it was also partly a confessional and partly an attempt by me to deal with my own role and things that I wasn't proud of that I had done. And I was invited to speak about the book to uh, a weekly caucus of Senate Democrats, and uh, Hillary was in the Senate at the time, and she came, uh, and uh, that's when we first met. Uh, The format is the Senator's mostly q and a uh... she didn't say anything until it was all over which made me wonder for a while mm-hmm. and then she got up and she summarized everything i said you know much better than i could have done <laughs> and um... that was the beginning of uh... the uh... actual relationship we have but it goes back it goes back years in the sense that when one of the things that was d- decisive in my leaving the conservative movement was that I was commissioned to write a book uh, that was supposed to be a hit job on Hillary Clinton, got paid a lot of money to do it back in the mid 1990s, and rather than do what people were expecting, um, I did my own legwork and my own homework and followed my own facts, and the book came out very different, differently. Um, and uh, you know, I identified at the time somebody who I thought was an amazing trailblazer, and is the same. Same person we're seeing today with the clear political vision and the decades of passionate progressive advocacy uh, that she's been engaged with, um, really all her life. And I wrote at the end of that book that I thought she had the potential to be more historically important figure than her husband. Uh, this was twenty years ago, and I wasn't no, I wasn't planning anybody's presidential campaign, but those are the qualities I saw her in saw her in her then, and I wrote that, and that you know, that quickly precipitated my exit from the conservative movement, needless to say. Okay.
2: David, I wish we had more time with you. And there were so many more questions I wanted to ask. We didn't even touch on uh, LGBT rights and the, uh, you know, the right-wing conspiracy. But next time, for sure. Uh, my right. last question to you with the book, you know, the, it promises that there are, are things that we can do as informed citizens to stop, I'll just say it, these wackos. Uh, <laughs> So what are some of those things that you list in this book? What can we do to stop them?
4: Well, I think the most important thing, you know, I wrote the book for one audience is progressive Democrats, Hillary supporters, um, people who are thinking about supporting Hillary, but maybe they don't have their mind made up. And the most important thing is to get access to factual and good and solid information and to be able to talk about these things in a way that makes sense and is compelling and i understand it's difficult because you can't necessarily rely on the media to do your work for you people read the headlines and then they start to get nervous and they don't know what's coming uh... but the reality is you know not everybody's going to take time to sift through all the evidence so what i try to do is sift through that evidence in the book and what people can do is arm themselves with the right information you know they can put in a plug for my own website they can go to MediaMatters.org, dot org which is just filled with Uh, refutation and rebuttal material and I think the first step is to be able to knock down the things that are being said that are false because the positive message can't get through uh, that kind of barrage Um, everybody has their own case to make for Hillary Clinton I've made mine in this book everybody probably has a different one but uh, for that to happen you have to be able to really get through a lot of garbage. And I show you how to do that.
2: (laughs) David, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a little bit of your book with us.
4: Thank you very much. enjoyed it.
2: David Brock, get your uh, hands on or a, a copy of this great book, The Killing the Messenger, the right wing plot to derail Hillary and hijack your government. I'm sure it's available at all major bookstores and, of course, that thing called the internet. <laughs> Don't go away. When we come back, we'll discuss the Pope and uh, his visit in the LGBTQ community.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
2: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. David Brock was just our guest, and I uh, forgot to mention that he's coming to San Francisco.
3: That's right. He'll be at the Commonwealth Club on Monday, uh, October 12th at noon. Awesome. So that'll be fun.
2: For more information, you could head to CommonwealthClub.org. Mm-hmm. Did I do that right?
3: That was perfect.
2: Wonderful. All right. As promised, we said that we will uh, we'll do a little bit of covering of the Pope's um, visit here and also how that impacts the LGBTQ community. So our next guest is with the Washington Blade, but also a good friend of ours here. I feel like he should be a regular by now. Let's welcome Michael K. Lavers to the program. Hi Michelle, good to talk to you again. Yeah, you know, like I was telling, uh, I was telling John, um, I not that I bumped anybody, but I might have this morning for <laughs> Michael. Um, Everyone was reporting on the Pope's visit. It almost, you know, just drowned out every single media outlet that there was uh, and anything that they reported. Everything was about the Pope. He made a significant impact, I would say, on all Americans um, and, and not just, uh, you know, Catholics here in this country. But how did he do with LGBT Catholics and uh, LGBT Americans?
0: That's certainly the million-dollar question, and it depends on who you ask. Um, I think the one thing to take away from Pope Francis more than anything is that his tone uh, regarding things such as homosexuality, regarding things like that marriage rights for same-sex couples has, uh, is vastly different than Pope Benedict's predecessor. Uh, that said, nothing in Church doctrines has changed at all on this issue, so that's the first thing to note, but certainly if you talk to... LGBT Catholics who were looking forward to his visits, you know, they certainly are looking for what one could describe as these reigns of um, progress. And again, I go back to what I just said in terms of the way he talks about things. Um, his tone is far more moderate than um, his uh, predecessors in the Vatican. So I think that's something that folks certainly welcome. Uh, that said, uh, Some of the things he did say while here in the United States, as well as in Cuba, before um, arriving here, uh, did cause some controversy among some advocates and Catholic groups. For example, uh, when he spoke at the United Nations General Assembly last Friday, he made a reference to ideological colonization, and he made a similar reference earlier this year when he was in the Philippines that many folks described as an attack on uh, same-sex marriage. So That was something that uh, folks were upset about. Um, another reference he made in that same address was talking about um, natural, basically talking about gender roles, natural roles between man, between a man and a woman. That was something else that uh, folks picked up on. But I think overall, um, he went out of his way not to specifically talk about those issues. As we know, he talked a lot about um economic justice, immigration, Uh, he talked a lot about, um, you know, just, you know, caring for those folks who are on the margin or marginalized. So I think folks took uh, comfort in that, but there were those instances, as I said, where there were some things that he said that seemed to be directed against the LGBT community.
3: Right before his uh, appearance here in in the U.S., there was some controversy where the Vatican supposedly was complaining because the White House had invited some LGBT activists to the papal mm-hmm. welcoming ceremony. And only later did I find out, I mean, this was the ceremony, I think there were either hundreds or thousands of people there. So yeah, uh, but I mean, did it all come off with a without a hitch? Or did they show up waving rainbow flags and shirtless? And and in, in <laughs> um,
0: I can tell you there were more than 10,000 people on the wow. south lawn of the White House during that reception, and um, it was truly one of the most beautiful days of the year in Washington in terms of the weather. So the setting was perfect, and everything went off without a hitch. There were no security issues or anything like that. I know um, Gene Robinson was among the folks who were there. Um, I happened to speak with the gay couple afterwards uh, who had walked to... The Human Rights Campaign headquarters, which is less than a mile from the White House, and they just described a really, really wonderful atmosphere at that event. Um, they were very happy to be there and seemed very pleased with what the Pope talked about. Again, those broader issues that I mentioned, you know, economic justice and you know, compassion for immigrants and so forth. So it seems as though, from the from what my colleague reported, who was there, it really went off without a hitch and if memory serves, right, this report came from one unnamed Vatican official. (laughs) So um, you can take that for what it's worth. But it seems as though it really went off without a hitch. And I would also make the case that the president and the White House made a point to invite these people as part of their uh, commitment to promoting LGBT rights, not only here in this country, but abroad. So I think it certainly sent a message. And at the end of the day, everything seemed to go off without any problems.
3: I, I kind of see pope francis uh, you see it with other religious leaders but specifically with him because the feelings about him are so strong but he's kind of the ultimate political rorschach test you know conservatives they'll love him because he talks you know his views on abortion and opposing same-sex marriage liberals are thrilled wait a minute a pope you know on, on economic inequality and supporting climate care and and talking about immigration uh, it's he he Gets kind of the best and the bo- the worst of all that because he no matter what he does, of course he's going to be uh, attacked mm-hmm. from both sides and supported from both sides. It's an in- interesting position, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I think the one thing um, I think the one thing to note about the Pope more than anything, and I've heard this consistently over the last few days, is that the that Pope Francis is quite an unpredictable person. He's known for um, saying things that. Um, one might construe as, you know, being outside the box. He's known for, you know, just, you know, going off script. (laughs) He's in Philadelphia. He quite literally did that during um, his appearance at the World Meeting of Families. He had a prepared speech that he was going to read, and then um, fairly shortly after he started to speak, he Clearly, he went off scripts. <laughs> um, he's known for um, doing things the way that he feels he should do things. Um, that's part of his charm, I would say, to some people. But it also, as you said, you know, it, it certainly can rub people the wrong way with what he says, whether you're progressive or conservative. So I guess it just depends on your perspective. But certainly, he's known for, um, you know, not he's certainly known for um, coming up with surprises, as one might say.
2: Michelle Miao and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club on the phone with us is Michael K. Lavers of the Washington Blade. And we're having a discussion about Pope Francis's visit uh, and how it impacts the LGBTQ community. Um, Michael, I mean, I you know, I felt like it was like a roller coaster ride as a queer person who's not Catholic. Uh, in following you know the Pope and the news about him it went from wow hooray it's so amazing so awesome such a passionate you know person this is this is great to oh you know I I don't know I don't know how I feel about that that's disappointing I mean even up to the end of his uh his visit uh, <laughs> I mean he had mo Roca the out television host open for the Pope during a New York papal mass and, and then you know speak in the he talks of human rights and then at the very end he makes a comment about Kim Davis not naming her uh, per se, mm-hmm. but um, you know, saying that uh, anyone should be able to write uh, be, uh, cite religious freedom and not give out marriage licenses or deny same sex marriage uh, if it is for religion. How are we supposed to feel? I mean, we answered the question that it was quite impactful, uh, but as LGBT Catholics and, and also those who are non Catholics, I mean, do we at the end of the day do we just say? this is what it is, it's great progress, and uh, hopefully, you know, each pope after will uh, be more Mm -hmm. progressive than the other, or what do you think?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and I think what your introduction to the question, you know, reflects just how complex uh, Pope Francis is. On one Mm -hmm. hand, you know, he's approaching these sorts of issues from a pastoral approach. You know, he's a Franciscan, he really likes to kind of get into the roots of things, he really likes to talk to people as well. So, um, so or Jesuit rather I should say. Um, he likes to, you know, have dialogue and he made that Point consistently throughout his time, both here in the U.S. and Cuba. So, I think he would welcome these debates. But I think also one needs to manage expectations. As I said at the onset of our conversation, nothing has changed with regard to Vatican doctrine. Homosexuality is still viewed as intrinsically disordered. The Vatican still takes a very strong line against marriage rights for same-sex couples. Um, Reports even came out, and some of the folks that I spoke with in Philadelphia were also quick to note. That um, he's made comparisons to uh, compared transgender identity to nuclear weapons. <laughs> so yeah. um, it, it's a very complex. It's a very complex thing. Um, mm-hmm. The tone has certainly changed, and I think folks are very appreciative of that. But at the end of the day, the doctrine of the church has not changed, and Pope Francis is the head of the, the Catholic Church, which represents 1.2 million billion to be Catholics. So. I think one needs to really manage expectations. But um yeah, I mean people were certainly hanging on to everything that he said and you know, some things came in they found hope in some of what he said, but on other things, especially the LGBT specific component of his um conversations, they people did take some issue with that. So it, it's very complex for sure.
3: Speaking of people kind of hanging on everything he said, uh supposedly one of the people who Listened to him very closely, at least according to some reports, was Speaker of the House John Boehner, who right. uh, has, you know, has kind of cited a private conversation with the Pope, uh, mm-hmm. in talking about his sudden decision to leave and to uh, quit Congress altogether. What do you think about that?
0: <laughs> um I, I I yeah, I mean I, I chuckled because I was I, I actually found out that he had resigned about five minutes before Pope Francis was about to take the podium at the UN General Assembly and I was at the UN General Assembly when it happened and I just kinda thought to myself, My goodness, your timing is just beyond <laughs> <impecable."> <laughs> Um, I, I don't envy John Boehner whatsoever. I mean he's obviously been through a very difficult uh, tenure as speaker. Um yeah, I mean the first thing that came to mind aside from the timing was that perhaps it was some divine intervention about the timing of his decision. But yeah, I mean I, I really I really don't know. But, you know, obviously the Pope might have had some influence on his decision. Who knows? But you know, the timing certainly is very curious to say the least.
2: Michael, we're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back we'll continue our discussion about the Pope's visit and its impact on the LGBTQ community. So stay with us.
0: Great,
2: absolutely. The Michelle Meow show continues right after this.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
2: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, Your host, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club, is with us. And on the phone is Michael K. Lavers, who's with Washington, uh, the Washington Blade. And so we're talking about Pope Francis's visit and how uh, his visit impacted the LGBTQ community. Um <laughs> Michael, I, you know, you mentioned earlier, I think the the gay couple um, at the White House reception, I I don't know if you were referring to Margie Winters and her wife, who were, uh, she's the Catholic school teacher who was fired, but she was, in fact, invited to the White House reception.
0: Right. This was a separate. This was a okay. male couple who I met. I met Mar. I covered Margie when she was speaking in Philadelphia a few days later when Pope Francis arrived in Philadelphia. This was a separate gay couple who I just happened to literally see their ticket in their hand. So I okay. just went up and did a quick uh, couple minute interview with them afterwards.
2: Cool. Well, speaking of Margie, I mean, you know, having be, being invited to the White House reception and and also during the Pope's visit, um, this is this person you know was fired. Uh, as a Catholic school teacher for being gay, and you know, uh, how do you think, uh, or I'm sure you've you've spoken to her. So, what are some of the things that she's feeling?
0: When she spoke in Philadelphia on Saturday, it seems it seemed to me that she was really conflicted about. Um You know, about the Pontiff's visit to the U.S., on one hand, she was quick to point out that she's Catholic, and I have a quote that she actually said was, um, and she was there with her wife, she said, quote, we're Catholic, it's about Catholic identity within the Church. So very clearly, they feel this affinity with their Catholic faith, but the the tires up the um, officials within, in this case, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, clearly had a problem with the fact that she decided to marry her partner. And so, um, as she said in her comments at this event that I covered on Saturday, um, her fire, my firing has, quote, touched the core of who we are as people of faith. So when something like this happens, and we've seen many other cases of um, similar conduct happen across the country, I think there was a teacher in Little Rock, Arkansas, about a year ago, who went through the same thing. Um, it really, um, you know, for folks who have devoted their lives to working for these institutions and for folks who really believe in the faith, this really is a can be a very, very troubling and very unfortunate situation. So I think what Margie was talking about at this event uh, really highlights some of the conflicts that um, Catholics, LGBT Catholics, face. And to add on to that one other um, story that really comes to mind, uh, for a couple weeks prior to the Pope coming to the U.S., um, there was a so there was a story that came out of Chile where two um, Chilean cardinals in a series of emails that were leaked um, conspired to block the nomination of a gay man who had been abused by this priest to this um, to Pope Francis' sex, sexual abuse commission. So a Chilean newspaper emailed these, um, or published these leaked emails, and the officials in Chile, the Catholic officials in Chile, um, you know, they've confirmed the authenticity of these reports, and Juan Carlos Cruz, the uh, victim in this case now is in Philadelphia, so he's been really, he's been publicly talking about what happened, and um, that's another case where you have a gay person who is Catholic, they still attend mass, but yet they're facing all of these and all of this mistreatment from the folks who control the Church and who are in charge of how things are run. So it really creates a difficult situation for these folks, who on one hand, they're, they're very much tied to their faith, but on the other hand, their very, they're very existence as LGBT people stands in direct contrast to you know, what Church teaching says. So it really creates a very, very uh, complicated and, at times, quite unfortunate situation. Um, in terms of, you know, how they reconcile their faith.
3: Uh, is it, do you have the same sort of reactions from people in Dignity, uh, the the Catholic LGBT group?
0: The head of Dignity, I did have a chance to speak with her in Philadelphia, and I've spoken with her a number of times prior to the Pope's visit, and she's quite critical of um, the Vatican and the Pope. One point that she consistently makes in her criticism is that the Church has still not done anything to address this idea that um, gays and lesbians are intrinsically disordered, that's a real sore spot for her. Another point she made to me as well is that uh, Pope Francis, during his speech to the U.N. General Assembly, didn't take the opportunity to speak out against uh, the criminalization of homosexuality in more than 70 countries around the world. He also didn't, uh, She criticized him also for not taking time to speak out against anti-LGBT violence. So, um, she's quite critical of uh, the Pope and quite critical of the Vatican for those reasons and some other things as well. Um, but I think you know, at the end of the day, she's still quick to point out, you know, this is my church and I'm Catholic. And you know, in spite of all of these things that the Vatican and the Pope is doing that are harmful to the community, you know, I'm still I'm still a Catholic, and it's my responsibility as an organization to make sure that the Vatican, you know, works to change these things. It's a glacial glacial institution, as we know, but at least, you know, from her perspective, at least somebody is kind of carrying forth the torch, so to speak, and saying, you know, things Mm -hmm. need to change, and you need to welcome us into the fold.
2: Right, right. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on the program and for giving us the lowdown. And, uh, I mean, again, you do great work and extensive coverage of a lot of topics. So people should absolutely follow your work. Thank you
0: so much. Always a pleasure.
2: You can follow Michael's work. He's on Twitter. Uh, and he's also, if you head to Washington Play, uh played. Washington blade where did my my pee has been focused on the Pope here you see no comment <laughs> um wow what a show you know the first half we uh, we talk about the conspiracy the right-wing <laughs> conspiracy yes. thing in theory um, with David Brock and uh, I, I think you were right on the money in terms of his experiences um, from going you know from right to left is so fascinating which would be part of the reason why I want to pick up his book. His perceptions and views on things must just be so fascinating.
3: Well, when you think about it, when they do uh, studies of people and, you know, just general studies of of political affiliation in this country and ideological views, most people don't make those big shifts. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of people stay in the party of their parents. Or if they switch parties, it's been like we saw over the 60s, 70s, and 80s where you had – People who were basically staying the same in their views, but the parties were shifting. You know, the Democrats were becoming more liberal. The conservatives, the Republicans were becoming more conservative. So people just kind of aligned more closely with that party. Um, So when you have these folks, and and it happens both ways, you know, David Horowitz famously went from the far left to the far right. Um, David Brock went from the, I would say, far right to probably not the far left because, you know, Hillary Clinton is not a, a far lefty but uh, you know, he made a big switch, and what I think is interesting about him is that he included um, apology and atonement in, in his switch. It wasn't just a, ah, I've always been right. Um, so yeah, he, he's complex. I'm, yeah, I think there's a lot that people can get from his story.
2: I don't know how people who live in this world, in terms of even just being a a, a reporter on politics, I don't know how you get a, you, you don't get exhausted <laughs> from the the strategies, the tactics, the games, the dirty, uh, you know, campaigning.
3: I I think, and I, of course, I know quite a few political reporters uh, nationally and and locally. I think for one thing, they tend to feel a little bit like they see behind the curtain, so that they think they understand it. They think they understand context of it i don't think they fully understand that their readers or their viewers don't necessarily get that and so they you know and oftentimes that yes well the report they're reporting you know the latest claim against uh hillary clinton or the latest uh scoop on uh you know ben carson or something like that and it might just be a planted story or a push story that you know one of the their opponents is pushing they understand that but it's kind of hard for them and they probably don't feel they need to make it clear every single time because they are thinking by this time that everyone knows how the game is played. And of course, <laughs> most people don't. Most people, unfortunately, even in a democracy like ours where, you know, we depend on people knowing how things work. Um, most people are kind of like lambs led to the slaughter when it comes to coming up against, you know, the hard nosed political uh, professionals.
2: Uh, Well, what does that say about our political system here in this country? Um...
3: Much better than North Korea's. Way, <laughs> way better than North Korea's.
2: That's why I love having him on the show. You <laughs> can make comments like that. Uh, by the way, thank you so much for giving me a crash course on, uh, you know, some of the, um, the, the terminology or verbiage that's used in uh, <laughs> the why, why, Catholic religion. Why, why don't religion. you show
3: it off to the audience? What, so, what were some of the words you learned? <laughs> so well,
2: papal, pontiff, pope.
3: Very good. And pulpit. Pulpit. Yeah, we only got through the P's, but um, we understand that there are other words that Catholics use, and uh, <laughs> maybe in future programs we will get into those.
2: <laughs> but you're not Catholic.
3: I'm not. Just so but people Catholic, know. Catholic, confessional, church, see the whole C words.
2: It's um, it's easy. I'm, I'm just thinking about it way too much. It's actually that that easy. I'll find lots of c words and p words. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I guarantee it.
2: Okay, so um, just to remind everyone, David Brock, best-selling author, uh, who is our guest today, he will be at the Commonwealth Club. When John?
3: Uh, it's going to be on October 12th. That's on Monday at 12 noon. So he'll be there in conversation with somebody talking about his book, and so it'll be a great chance both to meet him and to hear more extensively. Uh, what he's gone through and what his views are. And I'm sure we're going to have a ton of great political stuff to talk about with him, because I'm sure he'll be very current on it.
2: Uh, Is he doing a book signing?
3: I want to say yes, but I would have to confirm that.
2: I only ask because I have the book in front of me right now. I'll, I'll,
3: I'll be there, so I'll, I'll have him sign your book.
2: Please, please, pretty please. Um, anyway, pick up a copy of David's uh, book, Killing the Messenger, the Right-Wing Plot to Derail Hillary and Hijack Your Government. Uh, there are plenty of events, just like the one that uh, uh, John and I are talking about, with uh, incredible authors, leaders, um, what else? Mimes. 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 <laughs> Uh, you can head to commonwealthclub.org to check it all out in the scheduling. And by the way, our podcast here is posted up at commonwealthclub.org. Um, and, of course, you can visit my website if you want to find out more about me at michellemiao.com. It's interesting because I find that people visit my website at night. So, I'm guessing, I don't don't know know what that means. Meow. I don't know. I don't know what you're looking for, (laughs) but (laughs) it's not a porn site. It's just this little girl who probably helps your traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, we're just talking about, you know, Hillary and politics. Maybe tacos is what, well, you know, we've mentioned tacos Taco on Tuesdays. Tuesday, sure, you know Anyway, sure. <laughs> it's been a, uh, a great pleasure being here with you today on this Tuesday. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. We have Alan Chambers. He's the uh, man who founded Exodus International, a very hateful Christian organization that is now defunct. So make sure you tune in for that, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, have a glass of wine. See you guys later.